This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On the evening of March 24, 1882, German scientist Robert Koch traveled to the Physiological Society of Berlin to give a lecture on a groundbreaking new discovery. Koch had discovered the cause of a disease that had been mystifying doctors for centuries. He was certain that his lecture would represent a paradigm shift in the field of medicine. But instead of being met with rapturous applause, the end of Koch's lecture was met with complete and utter silence. One attendant stood up, and then another, and then another. Koch must have been panicked. What he thought was going to be the finest moment of his career seemed like it was going to be a complete and utter disaster. But the attendants weren't making their way towards the exit. They were heading to the stage. Knowing the long, futile history of trying to learn more about this disease, Koch brought the entire contents of his laboratory to the stage so the attendants could confirm his discovery with their own eyes. One by one, they looked into Koch's microscopes so they could come face to face with the cause behind one of the deadliest diseases in all of human history. And although they didn't know it, they were also coming face to face with a terrible creature that had terrorized people since the beginning of human civilization. They were staring at a vampire. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm Richard. And I'm Claire. This week's episode is part two of the Mercy Brown vampire case. We'll be addressing the questions surrounding her story. Was Mercy actually a vampire? Or could her oddly preserved state be explained by science? Why were there no more documented cases of vampire exhumations in New England after Mercy? 
Additionally, we'll examine more modern cases of alleged vampires and confront this chilling question. Could these creatures actually exist? Why do vampire panics continue to this day? We'll look at possible explanations, including diseases like tuberculosis and rabies, social unrest, and fear of the unknown. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And while you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. In last week's part one, we investigated the story of Mercy Lena Brown, a young woman who was born on August 2nd, 1872, in the rural farming community of Exeter, Rhode Island. In 1882, Mercy's mother and older sister died of a mysterious wasting illness. Nine years later, Mercy's older brother Edwin began to show signs of the same illness and left for Colorado Springs in the hopes that the fresh mountain air would help him recover. While Edwin was gone, Mercy got sick with the disease and died on January 17, 1892, at the age of 19. Edwin's trip to Colorado did not have the desired effect, and he returned to Exeter in poor health. Edwin and Mercy's father, George Brown, was desperate to cure his son. And while no doctor was able to help him, George's neighbors said they knew a way. George's friend, William Rose, told him that what appeared to be a disease was actually the work of one of George's deceased family members who had turned into a vampire and was now stealing Edwin's life force from the grave. Although George was skeptical, he agreed to let his neighbors exhume his wife and daughters. While the first two showed normal signs of decomposition, Mercy looked practically the same as the day she died. In fact, her hair and nails had continued to grow, and there was still blood in her mouth from the hacking cough caused by the disease. They also discovered blood in Mercy's heart, a sure sign she was a vampire. Her heart and liver were burned, and George had Edwin drink a tonic of water mixed with the ashes. In the end, it was all for naught. Edwin died on May 3, 1892. However, George never contracted the disease. He died of old age in 1922. By burning his daughter's heart in a bid to save his son's life, had George inadvertently saved his own? While stories of vampires or vampire-like creatures have existed for thousands of years, widespread belief of the vampire as a true menace began in small Eastern European villages during the early 1700s. The earliest official mention of a vampire comes from a report made to the Austrian government in 1725 about a man named Peter Plagojevitz. Unfortunately, the report is sparse on details, but it signaled the beginning of what would be a series of investigations into alleged vampires, creating chaos and death. 
In January of 1732, a young doctor named Johann Flückinger was dispatched to the Serbian village of Medvedja to examine claims of vampirism. Dr. Flückinger discovered that the troubles began with a soldier named Arnold Paoli, who had fled his station in Turkey after being troubled by a vampire there. Upon returning to Medvedja, Paoli was set to marry his neighbor's daughter, but he died after accidentally falling off a wagon. However, people said they still saw Paoli wandering the village during the night. There were claims that he attacked them and that he also took the shape of a large black dog. In the six years between Paoli's death and Flukinger's report, over 20 people in Medvedja died under mysterious circumstances, with many of them dying within only a few months of each other. It was believed many, if not all, of these villagers had become vampires. But not all of these villagers had become vampires as a direct result of Paoli's attacks. Some had eaten the meat of animals Paoli had attacked, and that was sufficient to transform them. It was said that these vampires behaved like wild beasts, that they could become animals themselves or transmit their vampirism through animals. Dr. Flückinger felt that there was sufficient evidence to exhume Paoli's body as well as the other villagers who were suspected of having become vampires after they died. He exhumed 40 villagers, with 13 of them being identified as vampires. One of these suspected vampires was a 20-year-old woman named Stana, who had died in childbirth two months prior. It was said she had been transformed after she painted herself with the blood of a vampire shortly before her death. Flukinger noticed that Stana's body was, quote, quite complete and undecayed, end quote. Her blood had not yet coagulated, and her lungs, liver, and spleen showed no signs of decay, even though she'd been dead for two months. In order to stop the vampire attacks, Medvedge's residents struck a stake through the heart of Arnold Paoli's corpse, which gave out an audible groan and bled profusely. The bodies of the other villagers who were believed to be vampires were beheaded and burned. Dr. Flukinger's report became widely circulated and it captured people's imaginations across Europe. Eventually, stories of vampires traveled across the Atlantic and were adapted by the people of New England to explain cases of mysterious deaths, such as Mercy Brown's. However, in the instances of European and New England vampires, there are scientific explanations to account for vampires' seemingly inexplicable appearances and behavior. A major warning sign of someone who had become a vampire was when their body showed no signs of decomposition. But the timing of both Stana and Mercy Brown's deaths can explain why they showed so few signs of decomposition. Both women died in the middle of a freezing winter. In Mercy Brown's case, she would have normally been buried right away. But due to the unforgiving weather, Mercy's body was stored in an above-ground crypt for two months. Since it was so cold, the crypt created a freezer-like atmosphere that allowed for Mercy's body to remain preserved. 
The situation would have been similar for Stana, who would have been buried in ground whose surface temperature was barely above freezing. For alleged vampires who might not have died during a cold winter, another factor in slow decomposition rates is blood hemorrhaging shortly before death. The bacteria that cause decomposition feed on the protein-rich content found in blood. Many people believed to have become vampires died in sudden or violent deaths, which were usually accompanied by significant blood loss. Less blood equals less decomposition. Uh, this doesn't mean there weren't any decomposition processes going on at all. After death, the brain liquefies and the lungs and heart are filled with dark fluid mixed with blood, which is what George Brown's neighbors found when they opened Mercy's heart. This process also accounts for blood being found around the nose or mouth of a suspected vampire. With the help of gravity, this fluid can leak out of a corpse's nose and mouth, giving the impression that it's feeding on the living. These explanations can account for why a suspected vampire's body is so well-preserved. But it doesn't explain that Mercy's hair and fingernails seemed to have grown after she died. A person's hair and fingernails may appear to be longer after they die, but that's only because the skin around them has retracted. After someone dies, the dehydration of their body can lead to skin and soft tissue shrinking, which creates the optical illusion that their hair and fingernails are growing. Normally, this might not be so noticeable. But since Mercy's body was so well-preserved, it would have drawn people's attention more. Similarly, the receding of a person's gums after death can create an almost fang-like effect. Additionally, the buildup of gases in a person's body can make it seem like a body such as Arnold Paoli's would let out a scream after being impaled with a stake. In an era when medical knowledge was still limited, it definitely makes sense why people would believe in the existence of vampires. All these factors can certainly add up to make it seem like corpses can continue to walk the earth after death. Additionally, the strange appearances and behaviors of living people accused of being vampires can now be explained by science and medical conditions we can now better understand. For example, porphyria causes an intense sensitivity to sunlight. Pellagra thins the skin, and rabies causes biting and general sensitivities that could cause repulsion by light or garlic. In the case of the 1732 Medvedev vampire panic, it can most likely be explained by a widespread rabies epidemic. During that same period, there were many cases of rabies recorded in dogs, wolves, and other wild animals in Eastern Europe. Rabies isn't only transmitted through a bite, a person can also be infected with rabies by eating poorly prepared meat of an animal who had it. It's no surprise then that Medvige's villagers believed people were becoming vampires by eating the meat of animals that Arnold Paoli had attacked. But what about the mysterious wasting disease that was behind the cases of the New England vampire panics and Mercy Brown? Well, the disease that afflicted Mercy and the other members of the Brown family was known colloquially as consumption. 
Sufferers of the disease looked as if something was literally consuming them. Consumption was a slow-acting disease that gradually sapped the strength of its victims. Hosts could last for years before dying. Its symptoms included a high fever, a hacking, bloody cough, and a visible wasting away of the body. At the time of Mercy's death, consumption was the leading cause of death for people living in rural New England, as it was responsible for killing one out of every four people. Between 1786, when health officials first started keeping track of mortality rates connected to consumption, and 1800, it killed 2% of New England's total population. Unlike other diseases, such as cholera, plague, and smallpox, that would infect groups in deadly bursts before going dormant as people developed immunities, consumption was a constant threat in people's lives. And although there was a wide range of suspected causes for the disease and recommended treatments, there was no cure. Once somebody contracted consumption, it was basically a death sentence. That is, until the cause of consumption was finally discovered by Robert Koch in 1882, and it took on the name by which we know it today, tuberculosis. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now the story continues. In 1882... Robert Koch made a massive breakthrough in discovering the disease that caused the New England vampire panic. Koch knew that tuberculosis was contagious from the work of French scientist Jean-Antoine Villemin, who had taken tuberculosis-infected matter from human cadavers and injected it into rabbits, who had in turn contracted the disease. However, it was still unclear what the contagious agent was. In order to find the agent, Koch devised a new staining method that allowed him to see the tuberculosis bacteria by creating more of a contrast between the tuberculosis bacteria and the tissue it was infecting. In his now famous lecture that identified the tuberculosis bacteria, Koch also demonstrated that the bacteria needs a living host to grow and multiply, and how it transmits from person to person. Ironically, Koch made his presentation a year before Mercy Brown's mother, Mary Eliza, contracted tuberculosis. Had the news of his discovery traveled past large cities and into rural areas such as Exeter, there's a chance she could have avoided the disease then the Brown family would have been spared of its sorrow. Maybe. But even if they had known about the disease, there's little the Brown family could have done. While the spread of it could be mitigated by better sanitary practices, there was still no way to cure tuberculosis 
until a vaccine was created in 1921 by the French bacteriologists Albert Calmet and Camille Guerin. Hold on. Tuberculosis is an airborne disease. But it took nine years for Mercy and Edwin Brown to exhibit symptoms. That's an awful long time for them to stay healthy after their mother and sister had it. Although they didn't know it, tuberculosis was still present in the Brown household for all those years. Mercy had what is known as the galloping kind of tuberculosis which can lay dormant in its host for years before causing an accelerated version of the normally protracted disease. She probably transmitted the disease to Edwin, and his tuberculosis manifested itself in the more drawn-out version that his mother and sister had nine years earlier. But George Brown stayed healthy this entire time. Performing the vampire ritual on Mercy seemed to guarantee his health. Well, there is a chance that he had a natural resistance to tuberculosis. A 2009 study by Dr. Erwin Schur of the McGill University Health Center and Dr. Alexandra Alcaiz of the National Health Institute of France discovered the existence of one or more genes that could make people resistant to tuberculosis infection. The study found that about 20% of people show a natural resistance to tuberculosis which is one in five, and George was the only one of the five people in his family to not get sick. But that doesn't explain why all of the other vampire expulsion ceremonies seem successful, like when William Rose exhumed his daughter. True, but for every allegedly successful vampire exhumation, there was an unsuccessful one. In the memoirs of a writer named Daniel Ransom, he writes about his brother Frederick, who died of tuberculosis in 1817. Ransom's father feared that Frederick had turned into a vampire and would start to prey on the rest of their family. He had Frederick's body exhumed and his heart was burned on a blacksmith's forge. It didn't work. Daniel's mother and three of his siblings died of tuberculosis over the next few years. In the end, it came down to chance. What people in New England believed to be the work of vampires was just the horror of tuberculosis. So, is the Mercy Brown vampire case closed? It seems like everything strange about it can be explained away with science. The evidence does overwhelmingly point to Mercy not being a vampire after all. After Mercy Brown, there are no more recorded instances of vampire-related exhumations in New England. Robert Koch's discovery of the tuberculosis bacteria eventually made its way out of the city and people living in remote areas such as Exeter were able to finally understand the disease that had so long eluded comprehension. However, even with the advantages of modern science, there have been several instances of vampire panics in recent years that have nothing to do with tuberculosis or other diseases that medical knowledge can explain. Why do vampire panics continue to occur? And can we learn anything about these cases through the lens of Mercy Brown's story? In the late 1960s, 
nearly 70 years after the Mercy Brown vampire incident. A vampire was said to roam the Highgate Cemetery in London, England. However, with the tuberculosis vaccine virtually eliminating the disease, there was no chance of this being a resurgence of the same vampire panic that gripped New England many years before. This was something else entirely. Reports of the vampire began when a group of young vandals started breaking into the graveyard at night. Highgate Cemetery, which had been built over a large mansion estate in the 1830s, had a long-held reputation for being haunted. And one of the miscreants, a young man named David Ferrant, reported seeing a gray figure in the cemetery after spending the night there on December 21, 1969. Ferrant wrote a letter to the Highgate and Hampton Express on February 6, 1970 about the incident. He wanted to know if anyone else had experienced something similar. There was a flood of replies. People reported seeing a man in a tall top hat, a ghostly cyclist, a woman dressed all in white, a pale face peering through the gate, someone wading into a pond, an ethereal gliding figure, and sounds such as ringing bells and calling voices. Ferrant was convinced the figure he saw that night in December was some sort of supernatural entity. He became determined to identify the nature of this being and to eliminate it if needed. But David Ferrant wasn't the only one interested in the supernatural elements of the Highgate Cemetery. The Highgate and Hampton Express, known locally as the Ham and High, reported in the February 27th edition that a local man named Sean Manchester believed the figure David Farrant had seen was a, quote, king vampire of the undead, end quote. Manchester claimed the vampire had been a medieval nobleman from Wallachia in modern-day Romania. This nobleman had been an avid practitioner of black magic, and after he died, his followers brought him to England, and buried him on the site that later became Highgate Cemetery. In the Ham and High article, which bore the sensational headline, Does a Vampire Walk in Highgate? Manchester said the vampire had been raised from the dead by modern Satanists, and that in order to stop it, a stake had to be driven through the vampire's heart, and then it must be beheaded and burnt. The only problem was that doing so would be illegal, as it would require either assaulting a person believed to be a vampire or desecrating a corpse. Ferrant felt that Manchester was only trying to attach himself to the phenomenon that Ferrant had sparked, since Manchester lacked any substantive evidence to prove his claims. Ferrant himself, however, did have evidence. In an article printed in the March 6th edition of The Ham and High, Ferrant claimed to have found several dead foxes in the cemetery. Oddly, there was no clear indication of how they had died, but this drew attention back to Ferrant and away from Manchester. But Sean Manchester didn't back down. He said Ferrant's findings complemented his vampire theory. 
the mainstream press quickly picked up this growing rivalry between the two so-called vampire hunters, and the public became enraptured with their contest to be the first one to destroy what was now being called the Highgate Vampire. Manchester announced that he would be leading a hunt to find the vampire on the night of Friday, March 13th. After learning of his intentions, the ITV network set up interviews with both Sean Manchester and David Ferrant, as well as other people who claimed to have seen supernatural entities in the Highgate Cemetery. The interviews aired in the early evening on the 13th. Within a few hours, the Highgate Cemetery was flooded by a mob of people wanting to partake in the hunt. Although the police tried to control the situation, they were quickly overwhelmed. Manchester took advantage of the chaos that night to sneak into the cemetery. He went to a catacomb that he claimed had been previously shown to him by a sleepwalking girl. He was unable to open the door to the catacomb, but he was undeterred. Manchester found a hole in the catacomb's roof and climbed down on a rope. The coffins inside were empty. Manchester sprinkled them with holy water and put garlic inside them as well. However, Manchester's actions didn't seem to stop the Highgate vampire. On the night of August 1st, 1970, a woman's burnt and decapitated corpse was found near the catacomb that Manchester had tried to break into a few months earlier. It's unclear whether this was the work of David Farrant or Sean Manchester, but a few nights later, Farrant was arrested in the churchyard next to Highgate Cemetery in possession of a wooden stake and a crucifix. When he was brought before the local magistrate, Farrant claimed he was trying to conduct a seance that would allow him to contact the vampire. With no evidence that Farrant had anything to do with the corpse the police had discovered a few days earlier, the magistrate dismissed the case. While Farrant was occupied by his legal battle, Sean Manchester seized the opportunity to make another attempt to be the one to locate and defeat the Highgate vampire. He returned to the cemetery, this time during the day. Using his sleepwalking and supposedly psychic friend as a guide, Manchester was able to open a family vault. He wanted to drive a stake through one of the bodies, but one of his friends convinced him not to, and he placed garlic and incense in the tomb instead. After these incidents, searches for the Highgate vampire diminished. But the rivalry between Ferrant and Manchester continued to grow. They planned to battle each other in a magician's duel on Friday, April 13, 1973. But it never happened. In 1974, Manchester finally seemed to come out on top. David Ferrant was arrested for damaging materials and interfering with remains at Highgate Cemetery. Ferrant claimed it was the work of Satanists, but he was convicted and eventually put in jail. Both men worked to keep the memory of the Highgate vampire alive, with each of them publishing a book telling their version of the events. And that's the nail in the coffin for our investigation. Book deals can be quite lucrative. There isn't any credible evidence to suggest that there was a real vampire behind this hysteria. While we now can explain what was really going on with the suspected New England vampires, at the time, 
there was abundant visual evidence to back up their beliefs. And while it's certainly possible that David Ferrant and Sean Manchester saw something strange in the Highgate Cemetery, the only evidence to suggest there was something supernatural going on was the dead foxes Ferrant claimed to have seen. And unlike the Mercy Brown case and other vampire incidents in New England, which were driven by people's underlying desire to help their loved ones, the Highgate vampire case seems to be driven by two men's desire for fame. Neither man seems especially credible. The Mercy Brown case was rooted in centuries of tradition and beliefs, while Sean Manchester's story seems to be taken straight from the pages of Bram Stoker's Dracula. There are staggering similarities. The mysterious vampiric nobleman who comes to England from Eastern Europe, a sleepwalking girl with supernatural powers, and Manchester casting himself as a vampire-hunting Van Helsing figure. Modern scholars call this sort of behavior ostention or legend tripping, which is the imitation of elements from a famous story in real life. One element of the Highgate vampire story that does share some parallels with the Mercy Brown case is how the mere mention of the word vampire can set off mass hysteria. When David Ferrant first wrote to the Ham and High, there was no mention of vampires. Like the people of rural New England, he didn't call the creature he saw a vampire, but rather referred to it as a ghost-like figure. It wasn't until Sean Manchester came into the picture that Ferrant called the figure he saw a vampire as well. And in New England, although exhumations had been going on for over a hundred years, they didn't catch the public eye until the writer for the Providence Journal who attended Mercy's exhumation labeled her as a vampire. In both the Mercy Brown and Highgate vampire cases, once the word vampire was used, the public couldn't get enough of it. Both cases show just how easily logic can go out the window when the supernatural is involved. George Brown was convinced vampires didn't exist, but he still allowed his neighbors to exhume his daughter and feed his son the ashes of her heart and liver. It's difficult to fathom that the people who clamored over the walls of the Highgate Cemetery on the night of Friday the 13th in 1970 actually believed they'd find a vampire, but they still showed up in droves to Sean Manchester's vampire hunt. So why did the hysteria catch on? Well, you have to look at the big picture. The Highgate Vampire Panic occurred during a time of social, political, and economic upheaval in Great Britain. An economic depression in the 1960s led the marginalization of many young people unable to find work. By 1972, there were over a million unemployed people in Great Britain, with many of them under the age of 30. The Highgate Vampire Hysteria is a prime example of how a community can create a supernatural scapegoat for problems outside its control. With Mercy Brown, that problem was the unsolvable disease of tuberculosis. With Highgate, the problem was an economy that seemed like it would never recover. And while nobody was saying the Highgate Vampire was the reason for Britain's economic struggles, it represented something unto which England's disaffected youths could focus their fear, anger, and disillusionment. 
And while the Highgate vampire case ended without any serious repercussions, a more recent case of vampire hysteria, one from this century, shows just how dangerous it can get when people become convinced there is a vampire in their midst. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to the story. In 2002, vigilante mobs formed in the country of Malawi when rumors of anima popa, or bloodsuckers, began to spread. The paranoia got so bad that farmers left their fields unattended as they were too afraid of becoming the anima popa's next victims. With food already scarce, this exacerbated the problem and the violence only escalated. One man suspected of working with the anima popa was killed, with three others badly injured. In each case, the men who were attacked were strangers in the community. The three men were only spared because someone recognized them as priests. The situation grew severe enough that the Malawian president, Bakili Maluzi, had to personally intervene. He claimed that the country's opposition party was spreading rumors that the Malawian government was selling its people's blood to international aid agencies in exchange for food aid. While the situation eventually died down and the violence didn't escalate any further, the fear of anima popa didn't go away. Less than a year ago, in late September of 2017, there was another outburst of anima popa-fueled violence. The whispers began in Mozambique, which borders Malawi to the east, where it was rumored the police were protecting anima popa. In Blantyre, Malawi's second biggest city, six people were killed before police began to set up checkpoints in an effort to stop the violence. However, unlike in 2002, when the government's intervention helped stop the attacks, the situation in Blantyre continued to escalate. Two more people died before the violence stopped. One of the victims, a 22-year-old epileptic man walking home from the hospital was burned to death in full view of a police checkpoint. It's not clear why these people were targeted by the angry, violent mobs, but they were most likely strangers in the community, or in the case of the epileptic young man, exhibiting behavior that seems strange or unnatural, a common theme in cases of vampirism. Whatever the reasoning was behind the attacks, the situation became dangerous enough that the UN had to pull staff from two districts in the southern part of Malawi. Once again, the Malawian president had to intervene. President Peter Mutarika personally visited the affected parts of the country in order to calm the situation and set a nationwide curfew from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. But even he wasn't able to eradicate the anima popa rumors. The harder the government tried to stop the violence, the worse it got. Their attempts to disprove the rumors were met with skepticism by people who already suspected the government of protecting the anima popa. The tension finally started to die down when local religious leaders began to call for peace. With trust in the government at an all-time low, voices outside of the political structure were needed. 
Figures such as Father Dominic Kazingachire of the Catholic University of Malawi were able to effectively get through to people who had previously shown resistance to ending the violence. In all, over 200 vigilantes were arrested. The mobs eventually disbanded, but the Anima Popa rumors haven't gone away. Unlike the New England vampire cases, when modernity helped end exhumation rituals, modern technology in the form of social media has kept the Anima Popa rumors afloat. And because it wasn't just a single sighting like the Highgate vampire, the hysteria took a deeper hold on the community. Malawi and other sub-Saharan African countries actually have a long, complicated history with vampirism that is intertwined with their subjugation under European colonialism. The first recorded claims came from Zambia, which borders Malawi to the west, during the 1930s. People believed that their blood was being taken from them in order to manufacture cough drops for Europeans. Stories like this are common in the region, which has been heavily exploited by white Europeans for goods and luxuries. The idea of having your blood, which represents the essence of your being, taken from you, reflects the anxiety and lack of control people there have over their lives. Unlike the New England vampires, such as Mercy Brown, who come from within a family, the Anima Popa of Malawi are regarded as outsiders who want to steal from the community. But in both cases, the fear of vampires reflects an inability to control deadly forces around you. It's also important to note that the Anima Popa have almost nothing in common with the Western perception of vampires. The Anima Popa are not thought to be undead creatures who suck the blood of the living with pointy fangs. In fact, they are all too human. They are believed to use needles or other medical devices to take blood with the aid of magic or secret technology such as chemical mists or electric charges that incapacitate their victims. The Anima Popa then sell the blood to the highest bidder. Stories and rumors of Anima Popa arise frequently in Malawi during times of stress, often when farmers wait on the results of their crops. If there is a bountiful harvest, the rumors usually go away, but they can get worse if there's a food shortage. With a looming starvation crisis, rumors of Anima Popa spread more easily, and insecurity can quickly turn to violence. It's very interesting that throughout history, and in completely different regions of the planet. Whenever there is some sort of unexplainable phenomenon, the conclusion people come to is vampires, or some sort of blood-sucking being. It seems like that's where all these vampire stories share something in common. They're examples of people trying to find a way to confront the unknown, which can be both terrifying and exciting. In the case of the Highgate vampire, the unknown is something with endless possibilities. It captures people's excitement and doesn't let go. With Mercy Brown and the Malawian Anima Popa, the unknown is a terrible force outside of our control. Could it be that the vampire's ability to elicit both excitement and fear is why it's so prevalent in pop culture? I would say it's a major reason. This combination of fear and excitement is reflected in Mercy Brown's enduring legacy. In the media, she is a monster who appears in horror stories and TV shows. But in real life, 
Mercy has left behind a legacy of love. Some of Mercy Brown's distant family still lives in Exeter, Rhode Island. One of their most prized possessions is a quilt Mercy sewed herself. Textile scholars from the University of Rhode Island have identified its materials coming from the 1870s and 1880s. Mercy would have sewn it when she was just a child. The quilt remains in excellent condition, and Mercy's descendants believe that she was saving it for a hope chest, a container for women to store household linen and clothing in preparation for marriage. Mercy's spirit is said to appear in Exeter from time to time. Her presence is said to frequent a local bridge in the form of the smell of roses. People say they have recorded her voice murmuring at the ceremony. And it is said she visits the terminally ill to help ease their fears of death. But there is still a dark side to the legends about Mercy Brown. The pattern of her quilt was very rare for Rhode Island. Legend says that anyone who sleeps under a quilt with this pattern, known as the wandering foot, becomes lost to their family and is doomed to wander forever. So what do you think? Is there any evidence in the cases of the Mercy Brown exhumation, the Highgate vampire story, or the Malawian Anamapopa riots that make you believe vampires exist? I wish, but no. The cases of vampire panic in New England all seem like they can be explained by modern medicine. The Highgate vampire seems to be a fraud perpetuated by two fame-hungry men who captured the zeitgeist of a frustrated culture in need of an outlet. And the stories of the Anamapopa seem rooted in Malawi's painful history of European colonization. Although it's extremely unlikely vampires exist, it's telling that nearly every culture throughout history has developed a vampire or vampire-like myth. I wonder how much of our fascination with vampires comes down to the human fear of blood loss. There are many myths of supernatural beings and creatures, but the vampire is one that can literally drain the living essence out of you. And with their ability to transform others into vampires, they don't just take your life, they take your identity. Vampires also represent something that humans don't have to deal with in everyday existence, a presence that's above them on the food chain. There's certainly something scary about a creature that sees you as dinner. There's a comforting element to vampires as well. They are a tangible example of life continuing after death. Unlike ghosts, which are either remnants or incomplete representations of someone after they die, a vampire is a strong physical presence. If you become a vampire, you can cheat death. Whatever the reason is for society's fascination with vampires, it doesn't seem like it will be going away anytime soon. Whether a vampire is a crazed villager in Eastern Europe, a sick girl in New England, a mysterious presence in an English cemetery, or a malignant force terrorizing the people of Malawi, it has the ability to represent people's hopes and fears. Vampires are a tantalizing representation of the fact that there's so much out there that we can't explain, and that despite everything we know, there are still unexplained mysteries to confront. 
It is a big world out there. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin and stars Claire Delamar and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>